Welcome to a special edition of the No Dunks Podcast. I'm Lee Ellis. I'm here with Skeets, Tass, and the man making the magic happen, JD. Today we're joined by a very special guest. He's a Canadian, and sorry, Skeetsy, he's more famous than you. Oh. He's probably not quite as famous as Justin Bieber yet, but it's a little bit closer. He's one of the most accomplished journalists in the UFC and mixed martial arts world, but his basketball knowledge runs deep too, and we've seen him work the NBA sidelines for ESPN. Yet despite all his success, in his 37 years on earth, he's never learned to ride a bike. He is Ariel Hawani. Ariel, thanks for joining us. Wow, what an intro. That was amazing. <laughs> and all very accurate too. <laughs> I heard you on a, on a radio show last week and, and someone brought up the bike riding and you said, you know what, I've never learned to ride a bike, but you were teaching your sons how to ride a bike. So how, how do you do that? I, you know, honestly, I just lied to them. They have no idea. <laughs> it's a big secret. They know that uh, Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy don't exist, but uh, mm. they're not quite uh, aware of the fact that I don't know how to ride a bike. I don't know. I never figured it out. And I remember many a times people were trying to teach me in summer camp. They would go, oh, we're going to go on a trip and all this stuff. Couldn't figure it out. So here I am, 37 <laughs> years old, and I still can't ride a bike. And you know what? I'm proud of it, baby. Wow. <laughs> I thought there must have just been too much snow in Montreal growing up, and the conditions weren't great for it. But I guess not. You get you had your chance in the summer. I did, yes. I wish that was the excuse, but no. <laughs> it's better than me, Ariel. I've fallen off my bike a billion times, and my friends would say to me that, that I can't ride a bike when actually I can. And so I'd rather be in your boat, I think. Just yeah, never get that? on the bike. Exactly. Yeah. Never yeah. get on the bike. When people say like, oh, it's as easy as riding a bike. I don't know what that feels <laughs> like. Is it? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Ariel, let's start in the NBA world because the uh, last dance wrapped up last weekend and you're a Knicks fan. So was it painful to watch? I mean, what were your thoughts? What were your takeaways from the 10-part documentary? First of all, I loved every second of it, and that has nothing to do with the fact that I work for ESPN. Um, I, I really enjoyed it, but I feel like I need to throw that out there in case anyone says, you're a shill, you're a corporate shill. <laughs> um, I had several feelings towards it because, number one, I know the director very well, Jason Hare. When I worked at HBO Sports um, as a junior in college and my first year out of college, uh, he was there working uh, on a show called Real Sports with Brian Gumbel, and we hit it off, and we stayed uh, very close over the years. In fact, uh, when when I first got a deal with ESPN, um, it was March of 2018, and he first found out back then that he was going to get this deal to do this documentary, and we went for lunch, and he said, I have news for you, and I said, I have news for you, and we both shared these two pieces of uh, massive news in our lives, so it was cool to see it finally come to fruition. And I really enjoyed it. I thought they did a great job. It was very nostalgic. That's when I grew up being a basketball fan. That's when I fell in love with the NBA. And even though I was a diehard Knicks fan, and even though my brothers uh, would make fun of me all the time that their quote-unquote beloved Chicago Bulls, because they were the biggest front runners, would beat my, <laughs> my beloved New York Knicks, um, it still was a great time. I, I was sad when it ended. I was sad every Sunday when it ended and certainly sad this past Sunday when it was definitely over. And it was just really nice to reminisce about all these moments. I knew about a lot of them. I lived through all of them. It was fun to see other people react to them. Um, and to see Jordan in that light, to see him or to hear him swear and to just see him with his guard down a little bit and to learn a little more about, you know, what made him who he was. I'm really glad that people got to learn more about him because it was really bothering me. Even as a non-Jordan fan, it was bothering me that Jordan had become the butt of the 
joke over the past few years with the Jordan, the crying Jordan meme and all this mm. stuff. MJ was never the butt of the joke. And I could admit that. And it really bugged me that people just like the new fans just thought that he was some guy who cried a lot and looked silly doing so. So hopefully that puts an end to that silliness. So yes, overall, I loved every second of it. So, um, you know, again, for people who don't maybe know uh, who, where you're from, like growing up in Montreal, you know, it's a big hockey country for one. And, and obviously Montreal is a big hockey, hockey city. So how did you even become such a big and knowledgeable NBA fan? Oh, man. So, yeah. So I did not grow up a hockey fan at all. Uh, hockey was probably my fourth uh, favorite sport. And uh, the story that I always tell to uh, exemplify that is uh, I remember vividly 1993 Knicks versus, excuse me, I wish, uh, Bulls versus Suns, game one of the NBA Finals happened the same night as game five of the Stanley Cup Finals between my hometown Montreal Canadiens and the LA Kings, and that was the game that the Canadiens clinched their last Stanley Cup. I chose to watch game one of the 1993 NBA Finals over the Stanley Cup clinching uh, victory for the the Canadiens. That's how much I love the NBA. Um, I I grew up with two older brothers, like I said, and they were into basketball. And I'll never forget when I truly fell in love with the sport. We walked into a shoe store in Montreal, and for some reason, they were selling uh, Patrick Ewing's shoes. And my brothers, who in hindsight, I think were playing a prank on me because they didn't want me to wear the cool shoes that they were wearing, the Jordans. They said, you should buy those shoes. And you guys remember the Ewing shoes, right? Oh, yeah, those were giant bricks. <laughs> yes, they were not very nice. They were not nice at all, to, uh, to put it mildly. And I bought them, and then I wanted to find out, all right, who wears these shoes? And I remember... 9091 watching Patrick Ewing and for some reason just falling in love with him. Like I'm not just saying, "Oh, I was a fan." Like I was obsessed with Patrick Ewing. Everything was Patrick Ewing in the Knicks for me. I would only wear number 33 when I played basketball in uh, in school. I would draw pictures of him all day long. Like you would think that he was, you know, my my boyhood crush. I was just so <laughs> obsessed with that Knicks team and I just fell head over heels for them and just got immersed into the sport and to the point where you know I would watch you know like uh, ESPN Classic so we had like an illegal uh, uh, first it was actually called Classic Sports then it turned into ESPN Classic we had one of those like illegal satellites so we got DirecTV in uh, in Montreal so I would watch the old games NBA Finals um, um, Lakers Celtics and back in the day early you know Celtics Knicks in the 70s like I just fell in love with the sport and loved playing it played on my high school team played for the Maccabi team which is sort of like the Jewish Olympics if you've never heard of it and uh, just <laughs> that's the best way to describe it even though we weren't that good um, and just became obsessed with the sport just truly loved all things NBA like I would have parties for the dunk contest and I would hand out like flyers and give all my friends like little bio blasts on each guy and try to explain to them who these guys were i remember in in the fifth grade i taped the slam dunk competition harold minor i I also loved harold minor for a brief moment and i was on this mission to get every single one of his rookie cards because he was going to replace michael jordan obviously absolutely it was baby (laughs) jordan so i taped that slam dunk competition in minnesota and I asked my teacher if one upcoming lunch period we could watch it at, at, at our school. And so we rolled in the TV. Remember the TVs used to oh, go with yeah. that big rolly thing? Yep. And I showed my entire class the 1993 <laughs> NBA slam dunk competition because I wanted them to learn just how great Harold Miner was. Wow. So that in a nutshell is Jeez. why I love this so sport did so you, much. Yeah. Did you uh, gravitate towards the Knicks in part because you said your older brothers were Bulls fans? Like, were you rebelling? Or, like, that's just weird that you became a Knicks fan. That's the part I can't wrap my head around. 
So I think it was a little bit of that. It was also I loved the underdog. I loved okay. the guys who seemed like okay, the the big bad bulls were overshadowing them, and these guys worked their butts off, and they were just kind of like gritty. That's my style. So the funny thing is, is that I was a Knicks fan, diehard Knicks fan. They were Bulls fan. I was a diehard Buffalo Bills fan. They were Cowboys fans. So I kind of went against the grain. And, of course, in, in Montreal, we only got the Bills games, you know, because that was during their prime, 91, 92, uh, 93, 94, of course. And it was just torturous. Like, think about those early years. Bills losing to the Cowboys twice, back-to-back Super Bowls, and the Knicks losing to the Bulls, you know, almost every year except for 94. <laughs> but 94 didn't really feel like it counted, right? So yeah. I just – there was something about, you know, Oakley – uh, Mason Starks, like you know their backstory. Like Starks is, you know, bagging groceries in Oklahoma and then goes to the CBA and then all of a sudden Pat Riley finds him. I loved Xavier McDaniel. I was so mm. sad when he left for Boston. Um, he was so cool when he like stood to Jordan in '92. So there was just something about their grittiness that I fell in love with. You were a bigger Patrick Ewing fan than you were a Patrick Waugh fan. Although 100%. you're wearing uh, the number 33. Both were 33. Did some people think you're just a big Patrick Waugh fan no matter where you went? No. My mom was obsessed with Patrick Waugh. My brother had a uh, poster of him on his wall, and she used to kiss it before he went to bed. It was very bizarre. <laughs> but, He's sort of a handsome man, though, wasn't he? He was. A ha- I mean, yeah. the hair, you know, you yeah. got the little, like, flip and everything. And he was a legend. I mean, winking at people when he was, remember that, in 93 yeah. Stanley yeah. Cup Finals? Yeah. But, yeah, there was just something about Ewing. And, you know, it was weird. Over time, Ewing kind of developed a reputation for not being very nice, like, the were stories that he wouldn't sign autograph for yep. kids on game day and stuff like that and i just blocked all of that out i was like no this is my guy and my heart would break like 95 when he misses the finger roll and of course 94 when they lose like it just felt like he could never get and then 99 they make it to the finals but then he tears his achilles my my heart just broke for the guy and in fact to to speed up to as i was talking about hbo um, I never wanted to go into TV production when I was, uh, you know, out of college. But upon graduating, I got an email from someone at HBO and they asked me if I wanted to work on a documentary. Remember HBO Sports, not that long ago, used to be the gold standard as far as documentaries sure. are concerned, sports documentaries. And I was like, yeah, I don't really want to work in production. I want to be on air. I asked them, what's the, the documentary about? And they said it was about the 1985 NCAA a basketball championship game Villanova Georgetown about Villanova the you know the eighth seed makes it all the way and beats the big bad Georgetown Hoyas and even though that was a low moment for Patrick Ewing I thought oh maybe I can be in his presence and meet him and learn more about him so I took the job just because it was somewhat related to Patrick Ewing <laughs> did you ever meet him I was gonna ask you actually have you met him did you meet him at that time or have you met him later in life so um, funny question. They did interview him for the doc. He was an assistant coach with the Rockets. So this is 2004. And um, they wouldn't pay for me to go to the interview. They went oh. to interview him in Houston. So I paid for myself. And I went there and I didn't really tell anyone that I was like so obsessed with him. So I sat in the room but didn't say a word to him. And I kind of regret it. Oh, so you didn't you didn't yeah. get a photo, I assume, nothing, or anything like that. Nothing. Oh, wow. But you I were just there. sat there. I was yeah. there. Yeah, I sat there. One day, I'd love to meet him. I got to meet John Starks uh, two years ago, and that was tremendous. My my wife, who I met in seventh grade, her initials uh, are JS. So when I would speak about her to my friends back in the day, we would refer to her as John Starks. <laughs> that was our like code name for her. So like the the Knicks were my entire life. I can't March eleventh, nineteen ninety five. I went to my first ever Knicks game, uh, Knicks versus Sonics at Madison Square Garden. If you've ever seen the movie Rudy, when the uh, the dad walks into Notre Dame Stadium and says, "This is the greatest thing my yeah. eyes have ever seen," that's what I felt like. Oh, Ariel, man. you're clearly a huge 
monstrous Knicks fan. You work at ESPN. I got to be your agent. Stephen A. Smith is always doing the media circuit after a, a big Knicks event. James Dolan said this. Let's go to Stephen A. Smith on SportsCenter. Let's go to Stephen A. Smith on GetUp. Why aren't you that guy? You should be yeah, the one. Yeah. You should be the one commenting. No offense to Stephen A., but get some young blood in there. You, you There's got to be a way. Talk to Jason well, here. Somebody. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, first of all, he's been around way longer than me and has a lot more clout in that world than I do. And uh, <laughs> can I just say, one of the greatest uh, byproducts of working at ESPN is getting to meet these people that you see on TV. And Stephen A., pound for pound, number one, to steal a phrase from the fighting world, the nicest <laughs> guy that i've met at espn like goes out of his way to give me props says hey i saw that interview hey what do you think of this fight what do you think hey my brother keep it up send me a nice email one time after he saw it like he doesn't have to do any of that so everything that you've read about him about being a good teammate and colleague is 1000 percent true i just wanted to say that um so but he he deserves i don't want to take his spot and to be (laughs) honest you know as as you guys mentioned at the top as lee mentioned you know dipping my toe in the sideline waters so to speak I don't want to be a, a biased Knicks fan. I, I want people to view me like they view me in the MMA world where, you know, for the most part, I have no bias and people kind of view me as a guy who calls it straight down the middle. And uh, it's kind of easy to do that these days with the Knicks. Um, it's, 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 you don't have to really be biased towards them, maybe on the negative side. So I'm okay with where I'm at. I, I really hope I can keep doing that uh, sideline mm-hmm. stuff because it was, it was amazing this year. Yeah, um, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, uh, how did that even come about that you were able to start doing stuff? Like, I imagine when you signed with ESPN, they obviously wanted you for your uh, MMA and UFC, you know, clout there. But were you in the contracts? Did you say, okay, I want to do some NBA stuff as well? And, and, And how did it all come about? There was no talk of NBA whatsoever when I signed with them. It was just for MMA. Um, and how it came about, it was very easy in, in this respect. I got there in June of 2018. The reason I went to ESPN, obviously, you you know, you want to work at ESPN, you grow up. I'm a kid from Montreal. ESPN to me was always, you know, the end all be all. It's, you know, the, the mothership, all that stuff. But I had a really good job with Vox Media and they treated me really well. And, uh, you know, I was doing the MMA stuff there. But the reason I wanted to go to ESPN in particular was not just to do MMA, but was to expand and to show people that I'm not just an MMA guy and that I know a lot about other sports and in particular basketball. So I never really said this to them when I signed, but it was always part of my plan. And so I got there in June of 2018, in September of 2018. So three months, I wanted to get my feet wet and, you know, just not really waltz in there and be like, hey, I got other plans as well. (laughs) So uh, I found out who the, uh, you know, the head guy of the NBA on ESPN uh, is, uh, the executive producer, and I sent him an email. And uh, I just said, hey, you know, I know you're super busy. The season's about to start. Uh, I'd love five to 10 minutes of your time. He said, yeah, sure. Uh, Come meet me on this day. Went to meet him could tell right away that he's like a straight shooter kind of guy. His name is Tim Corrigan. You may have heard of him. And uh, I sat in his office and I said, look, you know, I don't want to take up a lot of your time. I just want to let you know that if you ever need someone to work the sidelines to do anything regarding the NBA on ESPN telecast, I would love to be considered. I know I don't have, you know, an extensive resume when it comes to uh, the NBA, but I'll tell you right now, I'm a massive fan. I've been studying, you know, the broadcast. I've been watching them. I've been dreaming of being Doris Burke and Ahmad Rashad and Craig Sager (laughs) and all these people. And I would just love to be considered. And And he said to me, he's like, you know, 
no one's ever really done this. No one's really like walked in who doesn't work on the NBA stuff and just has been this blunt. And I have to be honest with you. I don't know a lot about your stuff. I'm going to look into you. Um, and I also have to be honest, we don't really have any openings right now, but I appreciate you doing this and let's see what happens. You know, you never know what happens in six months. Um, so that was great. Didn't hear anything back. And then maybe around this time, maybe like May of last year, they reached out and asked me if I uh, wanted to do some summer league sidelines for them. Mm. And, uh, it just so happened that I was going to be in Las Vegas for the UFC because they always do events in early July. I said 100%. I would love to do it. I couldn't believe that they were asking me to do this, you know, almost six months later as he predicted. And uh, my first, so I get there on a Friday. I'm super nervous. They give me like that polo that you wear, you know, the oh, polo that yeah, you wear. Yeah. Really. So <laughs> we had like, some wow. polos out there. Yes. It's like I felt official just getting the polo. I was like, I got the Summer League polo. This is great. And uh, my first game was with George Sedano, who's incredible, and Vince yep. freaking Carter as the color analyst. And Vince was kind of nervous too because he hadn't, this was his debut as well as a color analyst for ESPN. They were kind of testing him out too. And I got to do three games that weekend uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Day, the first day that I was there, I didn't do this game, but later that night was the Zion versus RJ Barrett game when the earthquake happened. So yeah. I, if you remember that, so I stayed yeah. the whole night. I watched and I got to see everyone walking around. And so they, you know, it was good. It was, they seemed to be happy with me. Go back home. Don't hear a word from them for, you know, three months. And then all of a sudden I'm sitting at my computer. I get an email from someone who works on the NBA side and says, hey, Ariel, hope you're doing well. These are your first two games of the regular season. I was like, what? <laughs> I didn't even know that, I, like, I didn't know that this was happening. I didn't know this was a thing. First game is Mavericks at Pelicans, Zion's home opener in early October. I look at the, the, the roster, how they have it laid out. It's Mike Breen. Jeff Van Gundy and Ariel Hawani. And I was like, holy crap. Mike Breen, I've been listening to for like 20-something years. Jeff Van Gundy, my favorite Knicks coach of all time. And me, Zion's home opener. Of course, he didn't play that game. He ended up getting injured. But that was nuts. Also, Chris Stapps playing. I loved Chris Stapps, all that stuff. Oh, and yeah. the second game is uh, Christmas Day, Celtics at Raptors. First ever Christmas game in our beloved home country of Canada. And I was just Incredible. like, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah, it was it was mind-blowing, man. The first day when I went there, I went to dinner with, with Van Gundy and Breen. And like, I, think of me, like I grew up obsessed with the Knicks, but I wasn't just obsessed with the Knicks. I was obsessed with the whole thing, right? Walt <laughs> Frazier, John Andres, Marv Albert, like the whole MSG <laughs> network, all that. And I'm sitting with Mike Breen and Jeff Van Gundy, mind-blowing. So yeah, it was, I'm going on and on here because I could talk about the experience forever. It was really incredible. And then to get there and then to meet so many people who are MMA fans, like like Steven Adams, like running after me back uh, in the locker room being like, hey man, I need 10 minutes of your time to talk about Habib and Connor and all this. I'm like, wow. you're Steven Adams. What the hell? This is insane. It was nuts, man. It was absolutely. So in the end, I got to do five games before the season stopped and it was a dream come true. Yeah, it must have been, um, you know, because of your you know background and growing up there. But um, that's what I wanted to talk to you about as well like a lot of basketball fans and athletes are just MMA and UFC fans so when they see you in an arena they're probably thinking you're there you know not to cover the game as such they probably think maybe you're just there as a, as a fan so are they trying to talk to you about um about the you know the fighting world and what's going on and trying to get any scoops so Stephen Adams to go back to him I initially saw him when I'm doing a walk-off interview with Chris Paul, which is just surreal. I'm standing there with Chris Paul. And he's doing a walk-off interview with the local OKC Fox Sports. He walked away. There's a clip online. He walked away in the middle of their interview and goes, what are you doing here, mate? I'm like, you're on the air right now. This is crazy. And so, yeah, it happened every step of the way. The first – so 
I, I, I loved Chris Stapps. I was very sad when they traded him. And Chris Stapps is a big MMA fan, but we never really met or anything. But over the, a couple months before my first game, um, he started like liking my posts. I was like, holy crap, Chris Stapps liking my posts. This is nuts. And then we started DMing a little bit. It was, you know, it took the next step in the relationship. And so I, 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 I slid in his DMs before that game. And I was like, hey, would you mind doing an interview? Because we were doing like these layup line interviews, which were really, really cool that they started doing. And uh, would you mind doing an interview? He said, yeah, absolutely. And so we did my first thing that I did on air for a regular season NBA game was me interviewing Chris Stapps Porzingis. And the coolest thing is like, if, if you've interviewed people and you guys have so many times, you know, there's a little like there's a little nod of uh, almost respect and appreciation that you could get when you're interviewing something that I've always felt was really cool is when someone says your name when they're answering your question. Like you, you notice how LeBron always does that with Doris. He's like, you yeah. know, Doris. And it's like, man, that is really cool that like he respects that person and he says their name. And Chris Epps did that in the first answer, and I was like, holy crap! I can't like that. Maybe someone's watching that in the truck and is like, whoa, Chris Epps knows who Ariel is because he he could have just like you know sometimes they do the interviews and they're not even looking at the person. And it seems like they have no respect for them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, or like, hey, man, yeah, man, yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. So he's like, yeah, you know, Ariel. I was like, man. And like, this was a big deal for him. It was the second game back after the long layoff, the injury. So that was incredibly cool. And then every step of the way, there was just like another thing that happened. Um, you, you know, when I was uh, I was doing so I was doing Nuggets OKC. And like that one was the weirdest one because it was like back to back to back where I'm sit, we're sitting. It's me, Ryan Rucco, and Doris Burke, and we're doing the coaches' interviews. And uh, first walks in uh, Billy Donovan, and he walks in right away, and he goes, "You're a big deal in my household." I was like, "What the hell, <laughs> Billy Donovan?" He said, "My my son hosts an MMA radio show in college." And I said, "Wow, that's incredible." I did the same when I was in college. I said, "If he ever needs a guest, I'd be happy to do." It. He goes, "You would do that for him?" And I was like, "Yeah, for sure, I would do that for him. You're Billy Donovan." So I gave like the PR guy my my phone number. Then next guy who comes up michael malone and he sits down it's ruko door i mean i don't say a word in those meetings because you know they're, they're the legends i'm just sitting there i'm a fly on the wall and he goes all right i know you guys have a you know a lot of questions this is a big game okc was doing great nuggets were doing great second seed at the time and he goes i know you guys got a lot of questions but i got a few questions for you and he points to me he goes when's connor habib 2 happening i was like what the hell this is nuts and then he proceeds to tell me a story about how like when flip saunders was sick they uh they hung out a lot and he invited him and they watched um you know connor i think it was connor versus uh uh, Dennis Seaver and all this stuff. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. Like there's so many connections. Then the Steven Adams thing happened later that day. And it just seemed like every time I was in, um, oh, this was great. I was in Toronto for the Celtics game and I got to meet Eric Smith, who I'm sure you guys know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what a nice guy. He was there with his son and we were talking a little bit about everything. And, you know, he came up to me again, when I'm at these things, I'm, I'm trying not to go up. You know, I want to say hi to people and be respectful, but I'm, I'm really very cognizant of the fact that I'm the new guy and I don't want to step on anyone's toes. So it's just been, it's been amazing, man. I, I, I can't thank the NBA community enough for how nice they were to me. And especially if I could just say this, you know, the people who also work as sideline reporters for ESPN, they could have looked at me and said, who's this schmuck, this fighting guy coming over here? Uh, George Sedano, Cassidy Hubbard, uh, Doris has has evolved and, and graduated and rightfully so from that position, but she could not be nicer to me and send me texts. Mike Breen sending me texts on Christmas Day. So proud of you, Ariel, that you're on TV. I was like, wow, I hardly even know these people and they couldn't that's have been cool. nicer to me. So that's really what made the experience so great. Which which NBA player do you think is the most knowledgeable UFC fan? That's Okay, there's a few you. that comes to mind. Chris Stapps is a huge fan, like ha- okay. hardcore. Yeah, he really follows the stuff and... Uh, 
peppers me with questions like, man, you really know your stuff. You know who's also a really, really big fan? Uh, Michael Carter Williams. Um, oh, wow. I've seen him. Yeah, I've seen him at a lot of events, and his dad is a uh, martial artist, and he's trained before, so he's a really big fan. Um, uh, Shaq, believe it or not, is a big fan. Uh, he, he's like, there's footage of Shaq in 1997 at a local show in Hawaii. He met a, a famous fighter named Vitor Belfort, and uh, the the Lakers were there at you know for for uh, training camp, and they all went to this show in Hawaii when they were doing training camp over there. So those are a few names that come to mind. Um, Michael Carter Williams, like I've seen Michael Carter Williams in the off season at like random cities just like traveling with his buddies to go to these events believe it or not yeah that was a really big surprise you know who was also a gigantic fan jonas derebko um formerly of the the jazz (laughs) and pistons Pistons. and all that he he trains too right i I feel like he trains yeah but you know what's weird when you ask them about training they never want to talk about it because they could all get in trouble for it Um, oh right right yeah Yeah, probably in their contract somewhere yep (laughs) and another guy who believe it or not is a massive fan is uh darren williams uh, formerly yep. of the Jazz and, and mm-hmm. Nets, uh, Cleveland, Dallas. Um, he actually owns an MMA gym in Dallas, and, and they're like a legit team that, uh, you know, there's a lot of UFC fighters who train there, and he trains there. Now that he's retired, I'll see him training from time to time, and uh, Chris Stapps now trains out of there uh, on the DL. Like, he'll do, like, I've seen a picture of him hanging out there, you know, in the offseason. I'm not trying to out him or anything, but, yeah. you know, they posted this stuff, so <laughs> it's all good. So, yeah, those are a few guys that come to mind. Cool. Is it is it different talking to like I mean are athletes all the same or is it different when you're interviewing an NBA player after a game versus a, a UFC fighter after a big fight like have they have they just got the same sort of um, outlook after a result? So that's a really good question. You know, I've been watching the NBA for so long, and I, I will admit one thing that early on sort of deterred me from going down this path was you know I watch all the post game interviews and the, the post game press conferences, the locker room interviews, and you know. More often than not, you know, they're just kind of throwing out cliches and it seems like they don't really respect the media. They're not looking at them. They're not really engaged. And if you know anything about MMA fighters, I mean, they're the complete opposite, right? They're very colorful. Mm. They're very open. They're very authentic. They don't have a lot of PR people telling them what to say. So for the longest time, I felt, you know, I'm going to go down this path because they're just such great people to cover the MMA fighters. And so I was wondering how it would feel when I crossed over. And I have to say, man, you know, I haven't really felt that about the NBA players. I have felt them to be very engaged and very honest and very forthright. And, you know, I'll I'll give you an example. And I I don't know if, you know, I caught them on a good day or or whatever. Maybe it was, I don't know. But so I did uh, Heat versus Clippers in January. And this was an amazing game because the Heat at the time, I think, only lost uh, one home game. And the Clippers were the Clippers. But um, earlier in that week, the Athletic came out with a story, uh, you know, detailing that there was a little bit of dissension within the Clippers' uh, locker room, if you may recall. And yeah. this was mm-hmm. the first game uh, since that article came out. So the game was incredible, and I was shocked. Like I couldn't believe it when we have like a little uh, Slack group at ESPN where they like you know per sport and they throw out like crazy stats. It's amazing what these people do. The stats and info group as games are going on, and at some point they write that you know. Um, Kawhi just got his 10th rebound. That's his first triple-double. I was like, holy crap. Kawhi Leonard's been in the league for nine years. He hasn't had a triple-double yet. I was blown away by that. But lo and behold, it was his first triple-double. So in the end, the Clippers win. And uh, I get to do the walk-off interview with Kawhi, uh, the, the, you know, the uh, unofficial <laughs> prime minister of Canada for life. And uh, it was, you know, I was like, I was wondering how this was going to go because Kawhi, we all know about how he is when it comes to interviews. And 
you know, maybe early on in my MMA career, I kind of got the the reputation for being a guy who asks the quote unquote tough questions or isn't afraid. I never believed that to be true. I never thought that was a thing. That was never a mindset. I just figured, hey, I've been given this privilege to be here. I might as well not beat around the bush and ask what fans at home would want asked. So, first question, you know, we get to do three usually in the walk off. The first mm-hmm. question was, you know, congratulations on the win. Congratulations on the uh the the triple double we'll get to that in a second but as you know earlier this week there was an article that came out detailing the dissension within the locker room and i asked him about it right off the bat no 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 foreplay no footsie beforehand like just oh how do you feel or the, and uh he gave me like a really good answer at least a good answer i thought it was a good answer and a good answer by Kawhi standards and then when i went to the back after they're like whoa we can't believe you asked that we can't believe you asked that right away i was like why wouldn't i ask it i was genuinely curious about what he thought about that article and he gave you know really honest and he was kind of annoyed by it but it was just like wow that was a lot of emotion for Kawhi. and so you know just things like that where i've been pleasantly surprised and maybe i don't know maybe when you when you are around these guys long enough you you shy away maybe i have nothing to lose maybe i feel like this is gravy I just feel like you might as well just ask it and uh, what's the worst that can happen, you know, and uh, it's been great. Another cool thing very quickly was uh, when Chris Paul came to do his pregame interview with us. Uh, weirdly enough, he was wearing a Reggie Bullock Nix jersey. I'll never forget that. I don't know why he would wear I think they were like AAU buddies, but it was just so weird to see Chris Paul wearing a Knicks jersey. Um, and, and and so he starts talking to us, and, and he's talking to Doris and Ryan Rucco. And at the end, they'll usually ask me, like, do you have a question? You know, you want to ask a question? You know, like they kind of gather notes for the game. And I asked mm-hmm. him about being um, a vegan. Uh, uh, like, you know, he's now like fully entrenched in this uh, plant-based diet lifestyle. And uh, he's like, oh, no, man, I don't want to talk about that. Uh, you know, I don't want other people to, uh, you know, to, to learn about my secrets. And I right. respect that. But then he kind of went on for like 20 minutes talking about it. So <laughs> at the end, uh, at the end of the game, he, he has an amazing game. They win against the Nuggets. And I asked him, hey, you know, uh, for the past five years, you haven't played more than 60 games in the regular season. And now you're, you're on, on, on a pace to play over 80 games. You know, he only missed one game at that point. Like, what's been the secret to your success? So he gives me this whole, like, spiel. Doesn't mention the plant-based diet at all. Right. And then I said to him after the answer, I was like, and, you know, that plant-based diet as well has helped too, right? And he goes, don't tell anyone about that. And winks and walk off. I was like, wow, yeah, I have yeah. an inside joke with Chris Paul. Yeah, oh, it was so great. It was amazing. So, yeah, that was a highlight for me. You've, uh, you know, you're getting all this information out of these players. You've got to interview Greg Popovich sometime soon then and see how you go with him. I hope he doesn't retire by the time I make yeah. it there because, like, I'm super low on the totem pole. Like, if they were giving me one game this year, that was a massive success. The fact that I got five still feels like a dream, and I hope mm. it doesn't end. But, uh, you know, I don't know how many years left. But I, I, I would love that challenge. I would really uh, relish that. We'll be back with Ariel in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsors. Guys, I was on the blacktux.com this morning, just browsing, you know, checking out the latest trends in men's formal wear. I clicked on Complete Outfits section, and I noticed they organize each of their looks into vibes. You got your classic, you got your romantic, bold, and beachy. Beachy! I wish the Black Tux was around when I got married. As I've mentioned before, back in 2002, I bought my tux like an idiot. We got married on a beach in Mexico, and I sweat through the damn thing. I am soaking wet in our wedding pictures. I look like I just walked fully clothed out of the ocean and got married on a beautiful Oaxaca beach at sunset. Like a merman. Exactly. With the black tux, I could have gotten a lighter color. 
tan, gray, or even light blue, I would have literally been cooler. Oh well, next wedding. And the Black Tux has easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com, request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. We are living in the future. Enjoy it, people. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with the code DUNKS, D-U-N-K-S. That's theblacktux.com, code DUNKS, for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. Did you know that people on average have to wait around 29 days to see a doctor in major U.S. cities? That's basically a month. Heck, that was a month. February 2020, leap year, never forget. And if you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that could connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides the treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to getroman.com slash no dunks for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's getroman.com slash no dunks for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. So, you know, we've talked a lot about NBA fans being obviously UFC and MMA fans. What about the other way? Are there a lot of good basketballers that you know of in the uh, in the mixed martial arts world? To be honest, no. Have you ever seen fighters? It's so crazy. Like, they're so great at fighting, and they're so athletic, and then you give them any kind of ball, a football, a basketball, a baseball, and they look like someone who's never picked up a ball in their life. It's so bizarre. Like, have you ever seen John Jones... Type in, in on YouTube. I, I think it's there. One time, John Jones was in Atlanta, and he they took him like on a PR thing to the Hawks, um, you know, um, training facility, and he was shooting baskets. And I was blown away by how bad he looked. Like no form whatsoever. And John Jones, his brothers are Pro Bowlers. Like his right, brothers right. play in the NFL. Chandler Jones, Arthur Jones. So you would think that he would have some kind of you know athletic ability other than fighting in his body. Nothing. Um, wow. So for the most part, like there's maybe guys here or there. But I have been consistently... And on the flip side, by the way, there was a clip that came out over the summer where the Rockets went to the UFC Performance Institute, which is like their training facility in Vegas. And uh, Russell Westbrook and and uh, Ke- and uh, uh, James Harden were, were hitting mitts. Oh, right. And it was horrible. It was like yeah. on the flip side. They're so stiff. They have no idea what to do, how to punch. I think the punching and the kicking is a lot harder than the shooting baskets because I feel like you just kind of grow up with that ability as yeah. a kid. You know, you just... But yeah, for the most part, I've been uh, very disappointed in the athletic ability of the <laughs> fighter. We're not going to see like a Deion Sanders esque no. uh, UFC slash NBA player. Maybe. Well, no. like, what about James Johnson? I thought he was supposed to be a badass. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So he's like a, a, a seventh degree black belt in kickboxing. Right. So yeah, there are you know some exceptions here or there, but for the most part, maybe it's because they're so tall. You know, yeah. it's just a little bit awkward for them. But uh, you know, the fighters have no excuse. I don't know what their excuse is. <laughs> You know, they're all like six, one, six, five, ten, five, eleven. Yeah. And for the most part, they suck. Like really suck. <laughs> 
What about your game? What do you uh, you you good basketball? You got any uh, any comparison you can share? Well, with you know, I don't like to toot my own horn. Um, no, I did play in. But look, look, first of all, I have to uh, qualify this statement with this. Um, I went to a private Jewish school in Montreal, so there were uh, there were maybe like forty eight kids in my graduating class. So it wasn't exactly you know the who's who of the Montreal <laughs> basketball scene. But that being said, I was on the team all five years. And uh, for those that may be confused, I know you guys probably know, you know, high school in Quebec uh, is seventh grade to 11th grade. There's no 12th grade and we don't have middle school and all that. So I was on the team from seventh to 11 and uh, I played my my claim to fame or what I'm most proud of is playing on the Maccabi team um, in 1998. Uh, we represented Montreal and again I kind of make a joke that it's the Jewish Olympics but it's the best way (laughs) to describe it where it's just like it's a a sort of like Olympic style games but just for Jews um, which is funny but it was really you know I mean the competition was good in fact uh, my first year we played in Detroit in 98 we went uh, 0 for 8 um, I'll, me- I'll never forget the last game my best friend was dunked on. And at the time, we were in the 10th grade. No one was really dunking on us in, you know, 10th grade basketball in Montreal. was dunked on by a young man who, let's just say, did not look Jewish at all, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, and we come to find out that, like, his stepdad is Jewish. So I was like, oh, yeah. this seems like uh, a little bit unfair. Um, and then Was the it Amari next... Stoudemire? Well, let's just say he looked a lot more like Amari Stoudemire than I look, if you know what I'm saying. Um, and, and so... The next year, we actually, uh, I played on the Pan American Maccabee team, and this time we were representing Canada, and that was really cool because wow. you're, you're, you're like wearing the jersey Canada, there's like opening ceremonies and all that stuff, and that team was a lot better because we had players from all over Canada, not just Montreal, and we actually made it to the bronze medal game against Brazil and lost, but the cool thing about that was um, there was... There was like the senior division, there was like the men's division, and then the youngster division. I was in the youngster. I, that wasn't the official name, but the the middle division was like uh, college kids. And Doug Gottlieb, who you may know as a you oh, know yeah. a media mm-hmm. guy, he was on the American team because uh, you know he played at Oklahoma State and Notre Dame. Um, and I'll never forget that summer. This was 1999. Uh, South Park came out the movie, South Park movie, and you'll recall the Blame Canada song. And we happened to share the bus with the American team. And so when we all walked on the bus, Doug Gottlieb was in the back singing Blame Canada. And I I knew who Doug Gottlieb was because I was a big basketball fan. I was like, I can't believe Doug Gottlieb is making fun of us right now. This is amazing. I was going to ask him about the credit card uh, scandal in Notre Dame, but I felt like that would be a little much if you remember that. so yeah, it was a great. It was there was also another guy who played in uh, D one college. David Bluthenthal played at uh, USC and then went to play for uh, Maccabi Tel Aviv. So it was a really great experience. And uh, you know, so so yeah, I did play a little bit and play now in a league like in uh, in New York with you know older gentlemen. But I'm I'm almost thirty eight, so I feel like I'm slowing down a little bit. <laughs> well, who would you compare uh, your game to if you had to? Oh yes. Like... So this this is the funny thing. I, I really tried to play like Patrick. Like I I would do the same thing. <laughs> what are you sweating I would out do... there nonstop? Yeah. <laughs> sweating i would do the fadeaway baseline jumper that was so kind of ridiculous for a someone who was five foot ten to and and like i would you know the form like with his you know his right hand would be like really extended and he would be fading away i would copy all of that i would like hold on to my shorts like him and everything like him and uh i i so i copied him in terms of shooting and uh I copy. I, I prided myself on playing like Oakley in the sense that I would dive everywhere. Like the, my elbows would kill after game, my knees. But it was kind of you know a point of pride for me. I adored Oakley, and and I will just say that uh, it's breaking my heart hearing him and reading all these things that he's saying about Patrick 
recently. It's, mm. it's really uh, it's really unfortunate to see dissension there. But anyway, yeah. So I tried to I, I really tried to play like Starks, like Oakley, like everything you saw with those <laughs> Knicks guys. Like I was not pretty at all. Setting picks, taking charges. I loved all of that. Oh. Well, um, you know, the NBA, it, it certainly looks like they're li- heading towards some sort of resumption in a, in a month or two months, maybe down in Orlando. It's not confirmed yet, but certainly it seems like the league wants it, the players want it. They want to try to end this season. But in the UFC world, there has been already a couple of events with no fans down in uh, Florida. How has that been received? It looks like things have been going pretty well. So, so I mean, based on what you've seen there, what do you think the chances are that the NBA will be able to pull off some sort of you know closure to this season? So a few things that it has been received well, um, for the most part, the fighters really wanted to fight because a, they don't make a lot of money and when they, you know, they fight, they get paid, they don't get paid otherwise. And so they were really eager to fight. Um, and I had my, my reservations. I thought when they tried to come back in April, it was way too soon. And luckily that didn't happen this time around pleasantly surprised. They seemed to have a good system. They were testing multiple times all that stuff and more. And as of right this moment, we only know of three people who tested positive, one fighter, Jacare Souza, and two cornermen. So it seems like it went off you know, pretty well. However, it's very hard to compare the UFC to the NBA or the NHL, Major League Baseball, because Dana White, who often is incorrectly compared to, say, Adam Silver, Roger Goodell is an owner. He's not a commissioner. So mm. as long as he can get, you know, 20 to 24 fighters, you know, to have 11, 12 matches to sign up, he could put on events. He just has to find a, a venue. He has to find an athletic commission who will sanction it. It's a lot easier for him. There's no, you know, there's no fighters union there, you know, he doesn't have to deal with like a players association or a board of governors or fellow owners or all that stuff. I mean, he literally is the judge and jury here. So he can just decide, all right, we're ready to go. Let's go. And so that's why it didn't surprise me that they were first. That's why it doesn't surprise me that we're starting to hear about boxing promoters wanting to come back in June and other MMA promoters and why it's taking the major leagues a lot longer to come back. So a lot of people were asking me like, hey, do you think that this means because those events went off well that we'll see the other sports? And I really feel like it's apples and oranges that they're going to have to be a lot more careful. And I also think because the players make so much money, they're going to, you know, they're not as eager to come back. They want to come back. I don't doubt that. But like for them, they need to be, you know, 100% confident that this is going to be safe and healthy. So I think that maybe it gave people a little bit of hope, but I, I don't think that it is. Uh, correct to look at what the UFC did and try to apply that to what the NBA is trying to do because it's just completely different. It seems like I've, I've read the same reports. It seems like they're moving in the right direction. I don't have any, you know, insider info, unfortunately, but um, I, you know, I, I hope that it does happen and, and, and maybe, you know, like that's why we're seeing, look, we're seeing NASCAR, we're seeing uh, PGA, we're seeing fighting. They're the first ones back because it's, you know, individual sports. A lot of them don't have unions and things like that. Pro wrestling has been going on since the start, never took a, a break. And it's no coincidence for me that there's no association, there's no union there. Um, and so they don't have to go through the same kind of hoops that the other major leagues have to go through. On the sort of the event side, the just the structure of this bubble type thing, in Jacksonville, they had three events within eight days. So I guess yeah, people just liken it to, hey, our own Sham Sharanya reporting that Orlando and Disney World has the lead apparently in this race for having a bubble sort of type event. Is there something that the NBA can draw from? Like, the, Because I've always been worried about this campus style thing that Adam Silver is talking about and not real strict guidelines about staying in the hotel, not going anywhere. Is there anything that the UFC has done you know, within those those eight days and in one city that the NBA can kind of emulated is there anything to draw from that 
honestly, I don't see a lot because, okay, let's take the first event, UFC 249, um, for example. So the fighters arrived Wednesday and the fight was Saturday. And yeah, they kept them in the hotel and they did multiple testing and that was all well and good. But then they all left Sunday and, you know, never to be heard from for the next, you know, two months or three months, whatever it is. Um, and then the next batch of fighters came for the following Wednesday event. And then the next batch of fighters came after that event for the Saturday event. In this NBA world that we're talking about, players are going to have to stick around for a very long time. And uh, are they going to get restless? Are they going to get bored? Are they going to be willing to stay in the hotel and be cooped up for you know the team that makes it to the finals over a two-month stretch? It's asking a lot of them. And it seems like they're open to doing it. But man, that's uh, that's a lot different than staying in a hotel for three days. And you know, I love MMA fighters, I really do. But uh, let's be honest, they're not the most hygienic bunch. You know, they've been <laughs> training like like this whole thing. Like, oh, we're opening the uh, the facilities in Cleveland and this place and that place. Like, MMA fighters never stop training. And to be honest, it kind of came across as a little bit selfish and reckless. But you know, they're posting pictures on their Instagram. Like, we're all you know staying at home and our lives have drastically changed. And you know, they're all taking their after training photos all hugging each other and posting it on their Instagram like hmm. life has not stopped at all you don't see you know Kawhi and, and Paul George doing that right now so um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see you know if the players are going to be okay with sitting in these bubbles campuses whatever and of course they're going to have great accommodations but it's a lot different from what the UFC was asking the fighters to do you know, uh, Dana White through this whole sort of process has kind of been, um, you know, sort of saying business as usual the whole time. He's been trying to get the fights up and running. And, uh, you know, you've obviously had a pretty, um, you know, interesting relationship with him over the years. How is your relationship with him now? I would uh, describe it as non-existent. Um, wow. Yeah, you know, uh, it's 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 unfortunate, but it obviously hasn't stopped me from doing my job. You know, early on, he was the nicest to me. Like if I don't talk to Dana White ever again, and I cover the sport till I'm 80, uh, I still probably would have talked to him more than anyone just because he was so accommodating and so accessible um, to me over the years. But the last time we spoke was in uh, 2016, in June of 2016, he kicked me out of the forum in Inglewood and at the time banned me for life. Um, And, you know, since then, you know, two years later, I got the ESPN job. So the relationship didn't, preclude me or the lack thereof didn't preclude me from going to ESPN. And when I signed with ESPN, I had no idea that they were about to become the broadcast partner of the UFC. You can imagine my surprise when like two months later, I found that out and I was like, oh, does this mean I'm done before even starting? Uh But uh, they've they've assured me over the many, many times that I've asked them questions over, you know, things that have happened uh, that, you know, they're definitely behind me and support me. And this isn't Fox, like what happened to me at Fox when Fox let me go after the, the UFC asked them to let me go or demanded, if you want to say. And so, yeah, you know, uh, there have been times, I'll be honest, where I've reached out, whether it was to him or to his PR people. It's like, you know, could we just figure this out like let's just sit down like we'll, I'll, I'll i'll take the tongue lashing whatever he wants to do let's sit down let's figure it out let's have our airing of grievances and move on um but he's not willing to do so which is funny because like i'm the one who was hurt the most like i lost jobs as a result mm. of this i lost money you didn't lose anything but i don't want this hanging over my head but i will say like hasn't stopped me from talking to fighters or anything he just he doesn't want to talk to me and that's his prerogative that's great um but i'm happy that i'm still able to attend the events cover the events get credentialed for the events all that stuff and more we just don't talk for the mm. for the non-ufc fan listening to yeah. this and uh, you know, i'm sure there are a ton because it's an nba podcast what yeah. is just a quick quick sort of backstory to that conflict between the two of you 
Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to no, gloss okay. over it. Um, well, I mean, in in very very short, uh, I had a great relationship with him. I I take a job to work for Fox, who then became the broadcast partner of the UFC in 2012, which seemed great. But mm-hmm. I guess when I took that job, there was like almost an unspoken rule on his mind that I, you know, would kind of be pro UFC. Uh. Um, but at the same time. I'm working for Fox, just like the odd event here or there. That wasn't my full-time job. My full-time job was with Vox Media, MMAfighting.com. And Vox was our parent company, Vox, SB Nation, MMA Fighting. That's kind of like the, the hierarchy there. And um, so they, didn't, they would get increasingly mad when I would report about things like unions or Bellator, their, their competition and all that stuff. Hmm. And so in 2016, they told Fox to get rid of me because a fighter, actually a fellow Canadian, Roy McDonald, came on my podcast and... Uh, was very upset with his contract and they were like, you know, why would you talk about this? I'm like, oh, I'm just doing my job. Like no one told me not to. Um, so in 2016, in March of 2016, let me go. And then once I was let go from Fox, you know, obviously I was upset about it and I didn't think it was fair. From from uh, from March to June of that year, I went on like a rampage. Like I, I could not be stopped. I could not be... Uh, I, I could not be slowed down. Like I just tried to break every single big story possible in the world of MMA at that time and it got to the point in June of 2016 where I'm at an event at the forum in Inglewood and I break the news that Brock Lesnar was coming back at UFC 200 and that was a really really big deal no one knew about it and they were about to announce it that night I didn't know that and Dana got really mad that I broke the news first and Mm. thought it was like me taking a shot at them but I was just doing my job and I was told to go to the back and uh you know, he said I was banned for life and that I would never be allowed back and all this stuff. And it was a very uh, traumatic event. Uh, he told me that his, uh, his, his, his business partner, Lorenzo Fertitta, had put a bullet in my head and that my career was over and that I would never, you know, be allowed backstage or anything like that. And so, thank God, times a million, it turned into a really, really, really big story. And, uh, you know, great people like Dan Patrick and Rich Eisen and Dan Lebetard all had me on their show the following Monday and it right. turned into like this huge media story to the point where they had to relent and give me back the credential and wow. allow me back and and I think if I'm being honest I think part of the reason why he doesn't like me till this day is because Dana is the kind of guy that you know if he does something controversial but if he believes in it he'll dig his heels in and you know he almost doubles down and I think he doesn't like the fact that I was brought back by the people like he he right. that monday when i'm doing interviews he's doing interviews himself saying that you know no way never coming back all that stuff and now right. here i am and i think that's part of the reason why he gets a little bit annoyed with me i think wild wild yeah <laughs> this is, that's like i mean i know you're right uh dana white not really a commissioner by any means but obviously the head of ufc but that is this is like the equivalent of Woj and like adam yeah. silver coming yeah. to blows you know this is crazy <laughs> yep i actually uh, used Woj as an example when i was getting uh kicked out because i said to him like what did i do wrong you know did, was i wrong was my information inaccurate like what's the difference yeah. between this i said what's the difference between this and when Woj or schefter break nba or nfl news there's no different like i'm not i'm not disparaging you guys i'm not commentating on you guys i'm not doing anything wrong and his uh, response like you could have ruined the deal and all that stuff which wasn't true the deal was done like who cares that someone broke it like then if this never happened no one would ever even remember that i broke it you know what i mean they would remember him coming back and all that stuff so yeah it's unfortunate but um i'm just thankful that it didn't stop me from because you know I'd put all my eggs in this basket um, yeah, of covering yeah. MMA, and that's what was so devastating about. It. I thought I was really done. I was. I thought I'd like no one would want to hire me. I would get fired. All this stuff. You've covered it for so long, Ariel. Uh, just going back to 
watching events with no fans, not only covering MMA, but just watching every single sport, you know, since we've been kids, have had fans in the stands. And I know you've mentioned a few things that was pretty cool in Jacksonville to have no fans in the stands. What was that experience like? What were the positives and negatives? Honestly, I've really enjoyed it. Now, I, I will uh, say I wasn't at the event. Um, no one's traveling right now as far as, you know, my colleagues at ESPN. Um, but I, and I'm not trying to be mean towards the fans. I'm not trying to put them down. I kind of enjoyed it a little more without the fans for a couple reasons. <laughs> Number one, um, you can hear the punches. You can hear the kicks very clearly. And that adds a whole new element. Like, like I'm watching like these two heavyweights go toe-to-toe. I'm like, wow, those knees now sound a lot different and they look like they really hurt and maybe the fans kind of drowned that out so that made things really interesting number two there was a funny thing that was happening especially at the first event so daniel cormier is one of the all-time best fighters he's also an analyst for the broadcast and two fighters in their post-fight interviews shouted him out i was like hey daniel thanks for the advice in the middle of the fight so they could hear the broadcaster sitting cage side and they heard daniel saying like one of them was this fighter carlos barza another one was this fighter named greg hardy former nfl player and they could hear him saying like they're not doing this correctly they need to start doing this and then all of a sudden the fight turned in their favor because they heard daniel talking about it so i thought that that was like a fun (laughs) new wrinkle yeah crazy um so that was a fun new wrinkle and also one thing that really bothers me about um mma fans especially as the night goes on you know sometimes they can get a little rude they could get obnoxious they'll boo when there's no action they're very bloodthirsty at times and you know walking in there and fighting another human being in the cage to me i don't care if the fight sucks if it's boring if three punches are thrown like i have a lot of respect for these guys because i can never fathom even having the courage to do that and it always annoys me when a guy goes through a whole training camp fights their butt off and gets booed and then you know is is trying to do a post-fight interview and is thanking his family and saying how happy he is and like he's getting drowned out by booze none of that is a factor right now you know like yeah. uh, some of the fights aren't that great but they don't have to worry about that they don't have to apologize <laughs> to these fans in attendance for you know whether or not the fight was good or not so there, there's just like little things like that where it's like this is kind of refreshing and i also feel like it's affecting some of the fights too like ufc 249 justin gaethje fights and justin gaethje in the main event is, is one of those fighters that gets sometimes a little reckless and gets a little too excited and sometimes the fans are the ones who are contributing to that and in this case, there were no fans. So he always stayed at like a seven. He never went uh-huh. to an 11 and kind of fought a little crazy. And I think that that helped him. On the flip side, Tony Ferguson, his opponent, kind of needs the energy in the fans to get a little crazy. And he didn't have that as well. And so, you know, obviously I want them to come back at some point. But I do not think for a second that it is affecting the product or that we're getting a lesser product like WWE, I've watched it a few times, WrestleMania, all that stuff. It's definitely affecting that product. It feels very sterile. It feels like it's missing something. In this case, for whatever reason, I don't feel like it's it's really missing anything. And it gives that gives me hope for the other sports that are to come. Like, you know, you watch Orlando Summer League. That's kind of what I feel like these games will, will sound hmm. and feel like. And I don't really yeah. mind that all that much. I don't think that that's really bad. Hmm. Interesting. You talked about uh, Gaethje there. I, I kind of float in out of... NBA fan, or MMA fandom and I float out and I come in I come out and you mentioned Gaethje and he's supposed to eventually fight Habib who's you know currently in Russia tending to his father I, I I don't know how good Habib is I know you've said he's the most dominant force in MMA I don't I don't know if those are carefully chosen words because I know you choose your words carefully but how good is this Habib guy is he is he top of the charts or how is pound for pound is he going to be the best how good is he 
Yeah, he is incredibly good. Um, when I say that he is the most dominant force, uh, like I'm, I'm paying him the ultimate compliment because you could say best. We could all debate who's the best, who's you know had the best resume, but that also kind of, you know, depends on who you've been fighting, your weight class, etc. This guy is a freaking beast. I mean, he has only lost one round. He has fought twelve times in the UFC. He has lost one round in those twelve fights, and that was against Conor McGregor, the uh, the third round of their fight when they fought at UFC two twenty nine. Um, and, and some people even thought that he won that that round. So uh, he is just so relentless. He suffocates his opponents. Now, his style isn't, you know, it's not exactly the flashiest style, but he is just, you know, it's like if we compare it to uh, the NBA, he, he's the glove in the sense that he's Gary Payton. Like, he does not let you breathe. And when he takes you to the ground he does little things like he'll do little things like put his hand over your mouth so that you can't breathe while he's trying to grab your neck. Like he, I mean, there's footage of him as a kid growing up in Dagestan, Russia, where he was legit wrestling bears. A lot of people <laughs> know this. I don't know if you guys said, but if you yeah. type in Khabib bears, like you see this little kid wrestling a bear who is chained up, uh, but whose limbs are very free. And that's, that's terrifying, oh. but that's just the kind of guy that he is. Like he is fearless. He is incredible. And he's really evolved as an MMA fighter in the sense that early on his Striking was obviously, you know, kind of steps behind his his grappling, his wrestling, his groundwork. But now his striking has gotten to be really good, and so that's making him even scarier. So um, there, you could right now, as far as pound for pound goes, and for those that don't know what pound for pound means, it's sort of like a fictitious list where you take all the fighters in the sport and you say, all right, if they were all fighting at the same weight, who would be number one through number ten? And obviously, this is very subjective. But for right. the longest time, John Jones was considered the pound for pound best. Meaning, if he was fighting at heavyweight or flyweight one twenty five, he currently fights at light heavyweight two hundred five. He would be the best, regardless of weight class. But his last two performances haven't been that great. And in fact, I thought he lost his last performance. And so, there's a lot of people who are making the argument now that Khabib should be number one. He's 28 and 0. Like I said, never lost a round in the UFC, fought 12 times in the UFC, 16 times outside of the UFC, and is just like starching everyone. And so, yes, he deserves all the credit. But I will say this Justin Gaethje will be his toughest fight in the UFC because Justin Gaethje is a former D1 wrestler. His wrestling is really good, his takedown defense is really good, and his striking is really good. And he is also fearless and hits really hard. So I think that Justin Gaethje has the best chance of anyone right now beating him. And that's why I want to see that fight so much. The way you uh, commented about uh, Habib's style, and maybe this is just because of my lack of knowledge of MMA, reminds me of our fellow countryman, George St. Pierre, and that he, you know, not the flashiest of styles, but is uh, is GSP, mainly I'm just leading you on with this question because I want the answer to be yes, is GSP <laughs> underrated forever? Because I don't think he was really appreciated during his run. Well, first of all, you've impressed me with your comparison because he is very GSP-like uh, in the sense that his wrestling is incredible. His takedown defense is incredible. Uh, strikes kind of similar to him. Uh, GSP wasn't very flashy. He used the jab a lot, which a lot of people got bored of, but GSP was just really good, and he was uh, somewhat defensive with his striking but was just mm-hmm. very effective. And uh, that's actually a fight that when GSP retired last year, he said the only fight that he would come back for was Khabib. 
and GSP huh. fought at 170. Habib fights at 155, but they were trying to like find a middle ground, maybe 165 or something like that. The UFC didn't want it to happen because they were afraid that GSP would beat Habib and then walk mm-hmm. away. Uh... And, and if you can't capital, capitalize on the guy who beats Habib, then like, what's the point of putting on the fight in their mind? So I would love to see like that's one of the dream fights that we we will probably never get to see that I wish we had the chance of seeing. Um, so so it's a great comparison, and and I think. And it's not because I come from the, the same province as him. I think he is the greatest of all time. I don't yeah. think there's much of an argument for a couple <laughs> reasons. He walked away in 2013 as the welterweight champion. He walked away in 2017 as the middleweight champion. Who walks away as champion? He avenged the only two losses on his record and in very convincing fashion. And most important, the one thing that he has that John Jones doesn't have, that, that, that Anderson Silva doesn't have, it's a clean rap sheet he does not have any ped infractions on his resume and those guys do and i think that that should be uh recognized and 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 for that reason i think he's the greatest ever you know on the men's side there's a lot of big names a lot of big stars like people never seem to go too long without realizing there's a new big name uh in the ufc world but on the women's side you know amanda nunez is a star valentina shevchenko too but does this women's sport miss ronda rousey and and just what she brought to this to the sport Honestly, I don't think so. I think she was great for opening the doors for the UFC to, you know, to start promoting women's fights, but I don't I don't think that she's all that missed and and perhaps it's because of the way she left. She didn't leave with a lot of grace. Um I would make the argument that in the history of the UFC as far as big name fighters are concerned, no one ever lost worse than Ronda Rousey. Right. The way in which she lost the first fight and handled the loss, I should say, against Holly Holm. I mean, she put out the blueprint as to how not to deal with a loss, you know. Right. Just never congratulating her, never speaking to the media, blaming the media, covering her face. Now, I know that it was devastating. I know that, you know, she was heartbroken and I know she had a lot of attention and people were kind of rooting for her demise at that point. So it stung and social media can be horrible. I know all those things. But trust me, the, uh, the same people felt the same way about Conor McGregor when he fought Nathan Diaz the first time and people were dancing on his grave and that guy showed up there and freaking took it like a champ and answered all the questions and said I will be back and did come back and did beat him in the rematch and it, on the flip side he put out the blueprint in my opinion how you deal with a loss like you you deal with it with humility and grace and 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 guess what I actually think that he gained more fans with the way in which he dealt with the loss than yeah. he ever did after a big win and so she comes back after that loss a year and a half later and fights Amanda Nunes. And I've never seen this, and I don't know if we'll ever see this again. Didn't do a single interview. The UFC excused her from all media days. They they like, they like make Connor, who's a gigantic megastar at this point, go to everything. He has to go to everything. It's part of the contract. They let her do whatever she wanted. When she showed up to the weigh-ins, like she showed up with her head down, didn't look at any of us. Like she was, bl- It was almost like she was blaming us for the loss. It was very bizarre. Right. But it also felt like the wound was still open. And so then she arrives at the fight and she looks like a shell of her former self and gets beaten in like 40 something seconds. And we never hear from her again. And she goes and does the wrestling thing and that's fine. But I think that the way in which she lost made people feel like, all right, like you don't really care about us anymore. And I'm not talking about the media. I'm talking about the fans. Yeah. You, you didn't like give us any explanation. You didn't talk about the fight. Like, all right, the sport is in good hands. Women's MMA is in good hands. You did a lot for women's MMA. You opened the door for these, these women. But now we've got... Amanda Nunes, we've got Zhang Wei Li, who's an incredible champion. You know, you've got all these great fighters like Valentina Shevchenko, and the list goes on and on. It's like, all right, it was a nice period, 
but you know we're kind of over it and, and we can move on so the notion that like women's mma needs ronda or that we're desperately missing her or anything like that i i don't think that that's accurate okay great well uh what we're going to do just before we wrap up we play a little game with our guests called what you got what you got What happens is I present you with a couple of options and you have to tell us which one is right. So you've got to pick out of these two. Out of Well, the first one is actually three options, but I sort of think well, I know where you're going to go because you kind yeah, of addressed it already. Yeah, I think we know already. the answer here, Lee. <laughs> well, wait yeah. a second. Lee, can you just yeah. tell your friends how much I killed it on the, uh, the card game that we played? I mean, have hey. you told them? Of course, of course. <laughs> okay. I just wanted I that mean, recognition. That was the first time ever that like, I've just been totally owned by the guest. And uh, and Thank also you. and also the other uh, thing was you uh, wanted to open another pack, so That's we did right. two packs for the first. I would have done so. three. Had yeah, you <laughs> yeah. I, I actually specifically didn't watch the clip on our Instagram page because I saw it was thirty minutes long. Ariel, I was like, "Geez, I haven't got time for this, man." Come on, it going was going great. On. It was great fun. It was great no, fun. I know. I, I, I heard you were impressive. I will watch it. I, I'd like Thanks. to. We'll have to. I'm gonna. You know, I, I pride myself on knowing a lot of those cards too, Lily. As does Tass. We might have to have a battle here at some point with Ariel. For, uh, any I'm day, my man. Any freaking day. I, I am it. telling you, Ariel will uh, will shock you just how deep it goes. Like I said, I, I knew he was an NBA fan. I didn't know we were talking about who traded, uh, who was in the trade for Dominique Wilkins when he left the Hawks. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Danny Fair Manning. Danny Manning, that's right. <laughs> okay, well, the first one, like I say, it's three options, and you kind of addressed it, but best pound, pound for pound fighter ever, John Jones, Anderson Silva, or GSP. Who wins that fight? Who's the first out of the ring in a sort of Royal Rumble style? Oh, my. Okay, wow. We've never had a, a triple threat match in UFC history before uh, okay I'll, I'll go in order I'll say I'll say Anderson gets eliminated first and then our guy GSP beats John Jones right okay our guy yeah that's right is, is Anderson Anderson Silva underappreciated because I mean he's probably John Jones is probably just too big for Anderson Silva I imagine no, that was a fight that was kind of bandied about, but they, you know, John kind of came on a little later in Anderson's career. But Anderson fought at 205. He, you know, he was the champion at 185, went up to 205. I think that Anderson is respected for for what he did, but I think later uh, he had a couple of PD infractions, and I think that's tarnished his legacy a little bit. Hmm. All right, back to the NBA world now. There's no Patrick Ewing in this one, uh, oh. <laughs> but best center, Shaq or Akeem? Shaq, easy. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. Wow. Easy. Easy. Yeah. Way more dominant. Um, And listen, you know, Patrick beat Akeem in the uh, 1984 NCAA Finals. Let's not forget about that. People (laughs) want to bring up 1994. But when it really mattered, Georgetown versus Houston, that's when we got him. Uh, Akeem was amazing. And and you notice I said Akeem in 1984 because he added the H afterwards. Okay. I just want that to be uh, noted. Akeem right, was amazing. Come on, that's not that impressive. Now you're now you're getting. Oh come on, come on! I'm trying to pat my head back. Um, so the dream shake was great. I thought his best years were in Toronto. If I'm being honest, <laughs> but I mean Shaquille was a force. If anyone is underappreciated, I actually think Shaquille's underappreciated. Remember when hmm. Shaquille came in '92, '93, '94? Like this guy was a beast. '95, he was yep. incredible. So I would say Shaq. Yes. Okay. All right, one a little bit closer to home. I've taken Ewing out of this. I'm going with your favorite Nick, Charles Oakley or John Starks. Oh, my gosh. That is a really <laughs> tough one. Oh, man. Pick between um, your two kids, Ariel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, see, this is, the problem is I'm really down on Oakley right now. I don't know if you guys have seen. Like, he's gone on this crusade yeah. against Patrick. And it's really making yeah. me sad. So, for that reason, and we had his back. Like, when he was, that, that was the lowest moment in Nick's history. Not when they couldn't sign KD or Kyrie or anything. When they dragged Charles Oakley out of MSG like a piece of garbage, to me, 
my fandom died that day. It was really pathetic. It was sad what they did to him. And I feel like we had his back and what he's doing now just doesn't make And I know he's mad that Ewing didn't have his back and all that stuff, but can you deal with that behind the scenes? So for that reason, I'll go with Starks because you know what? John Starks wouldn't be seen golfing with Michael Jordan, all right? John Starks Ooh. is for life, all right? The man from Oklahoma State, he is for life. I was I was devastated when they traded him to Golden State. Obviously, the, the trade worked out because we got Luttrell. But uh, to me, he's a Nick for life, so I'll go with John Starks. And Charles Oakley probably had his best days as a Raptor, just like a Listen, <laughs> yeah. no, but, but actually, that's like a legit statement. Not I wouldn't say best days, but he was, I think, a, he was a, good. a pretty good force. Yeah, but <laughs> Mark Hamby, what a trade that ended up being, being you know, 99. Hamby <laughs> was huge for us, so I was happy with it. But I was sad that it was kind of the end of the era when, when they traded him away. So, But because of what he's saying these days, I'll go with Starks. Okay, uh, two more here. One, These two are uh, a little bit closer to home. First one, back in Montreal, best Canadian staple, poutine or Montreal smoked meat? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, and it could be from any place, right? Yep. Okay, because I thought you were going to get like Schwartz's or stuff. You know, that's the one that everyone talks about. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll go with poutine. I'm I'm not as much of a... I love the meat. Like, a, a, don't get me wrong. Montreal smoked meat is the best, but poutine. What's better than hot poutine on a really cold day? And it's like, mm. you know, like blowing smoke in your face and the cheese is melting and the gravy is burning. <laughs> it's incredible stuff. So I'll go with the poutine. Okay, last one here. I hope you get the reference. I'm sure you will. Best movie, Finding Nemo or The Little Mermaid? Ah, uh, yes. Oh, thanks. I haven't heard that one uh, since I was uh, six years old. Uh, of course, I'll go with uh, The Little Mermaid. Not even yeah. close. Ariel, I mean, she was incredible. She was a legend. Well, that's I, I saw as well when you were interviewing uh, Rampage Jackson, and, uh, and yes. he, was, he was talking about it then because he was another guy. He was probably... You know, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, one of the first guys that you really had like some beef with in the media. Like he often was pretty <laughs> nasty to you and belittled you a lot. Um, and yeah. there's some clips of you when you're a, you're a young kid. You must only be 25 or 26. You know, sort of skinny kid there, um, standing yeah. with a big UFC fighter, and he's trying to kind of bully you and intimidate you. But you know, you held your ground all the time there, and I thought that was really uh, really you know strong of you to be able to do that. I appreciate that. Yeah, for some reason, a lot of people have asked me, were you ever afraid of someone punching you or doing something to you? And Rampage just put his hands on me like he choked me. Yeah, uh, he and slapped you in that other one too. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know. You know, when you come from the mean streets of the 514, you grow up in Montreal, <laughs> where I grew up and, and, and you've seen the things that I've seen, these guys can't, you know, intimidate me. So I, I was never afraid, honestly. I was never afraid of them. I'm still not afraid of them. I was in the Jewish Olympics, Ram. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right, damn it. Yes, I've seen it all. He, he yeah. tried playing the, 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 the Jewish-Brazilian basketball team in hostile grounds in Mexico <laughs> yeah. City. That will rattle you to your core. Exactly. Oh, that does sound a little intimidating, got to be honest. <laughs> yeah. It no was sarcasm hostile. Needed. Trust yeah. me, it was hostile, but we, we powered through. Yeah. Well, you had those big Patrick Ewing shoes. Maybe that scared that's everyone right. else off. Yeah. You know? That's right. Well, Ariel, thanks so much for joining us. We uh, we had a lot of fun here talking to you and listening to all your stories about uh, the NBA world and the UFC world. It's been fantastic. Uh, wish you all the best, and hopefully we can cross paths with you somewhere at some event. Um, you know, I mean, like whenever the NBA starts up again, and you know, there's often uh, a, a, you know big cities hosting these events where there's big NBA events as well. So maybe we can uh, catch up and have a beer and uh, talk about it some no, more. No, no. Here's the problem with that, Lee. You're never going to be able to have a beer with Ariel because he works till like four in the morning at these yeah. events. And Lee, you're in bed by like 10 o'clock because we've tried to make this happen before, have we not, Ariel? 
Yes, that is accurate about the 4 a.m. thing. And you uh, work so late, man. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah but it's it different. It's, it's different when I'm at a fight event. I was at um, I was in Manchester for Ricky Hatton and uh, and Costa Zoo back in 2005, oh, wow. and that yeah, that went into the night. That was 11 rounds. That was an incredible fight. And then we were staying like at the hotel where uh, Costa Zoo was staying, so all his entourage came back. I never got to see him, unfortunately, but uh, we were staying up that late that night. So if it's a fight right. night, I can stay up late. Okay, okay, <laughs> all right. Um, and let me just say, and I would love to do that. Congratulations to you guys. You know, you guys are an inspiration and, and we were kind of coming up, but you were well ahead of me, you know, when, when I was coming up um, at around the same time and the stuff that you guys have done and how you've, you know, pivoted and evolved and you know, all the stuff, you know, all the, the stops. And I know that at times it can be disappointing when things don't work out and, and, and you, you, you pick yourself up, and you dust yourself off. It's amazing. And I love the fact that you're Canadian as well. So I uh, just want to congratulate you. And it's, it's an absolute honor to be on the show because I've been listening to it for so long and enjoying it. So I, I wish you all continued success and i hope that you keep doing this for many years thanks man been a lot of fun having you on thanks for the kind words and for any listeners out there if you want to follow ariel obviously on social media he is just ariel halwani so check him out everywhere and follow along thanks ariel thanks guys appreciate it